to talk this morning about fatherhood. Seems an interesting subject. It's not Father's Day. We're coming up on Christmas. Doesn't always seem a very Christmassy subject, but we need to talk about fatherhood. And fatherhood can be a touchy, difficult subject for some. Some have had great fathers. Your father, maybe you have wonderful memories of your father, wonderful time with your father, and and hopefully for some of us, our fathers are a picture of a loving God who has cared for us and looked over us. But for some, the picture of father is of someone who should have been there and wasn't. And that's hard, because then when we come to Scripture and we look at fatherhood, as we will this morning, what we're reminded of is maybe what was missing in our own lives. And then there are some who had fathers who were not that great, or maybe even downright awful. But we need to push through that topic And push through the concept to get to an understanding of what scripture means by fatherhood. Because God, over and over again, is described as our great father. And so we need to look at what does this mean that scripture describes our relationship with our creator as one who is father over us. And then, as we look at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, which is where we are in this little mini-sermon series, we have this prophecy that describes Jesus Christ, the baby born in the manger, this coming Messiah, as the everlasting Father. So we're walking toward Christmas, looking at these titles in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us... A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And here's the titles, and we're taking one a week. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's always important when you look at Scripture to understand the context. We don't want to just rip things out of context. The people of God at this time were going through a really difficult time. Israel, the kingdom, the people that God had called into relationship with him was split through a civil war into the northern and southern kingdoms, and they hated each other. And it's just a a messed up picture of how messy sin is, even among the people of God. And so the northern kingdom was threatening to invade the, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had gathered all these allies that were powerful. And the southern kingdom is going, God, what are we going to do? It looks like we're going to be wiped out. And that sets up Isaiah chapter 9, where God is telling his people, hold on, I am going to bring a deliverer to you. But the words of Isaiah chapter 9, while certainly God did raise up someone to deliver them, the southern kingdom wasn't wiped out at this time, the language in Isaiah chapter 9 makes it pretty clear that God is actually pointing to, yes, he's going to rescue them then and there, but he's got a greater rescue that's coming. And the language of this chapter clearly is pointing to something more than just a human being that God is going to rise up to rescue his people. And we looked several weeks ago at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew takes the words right out of the beginning of of Isaiah chapter 9 and says this is about Jesus Christ. And So the difference that this makes for us for Christmas is that we need to consider this baby in the manger. 
And we need to constantly be asking ourselves, is my picture of this child, is my understanding of who this child is that's born in the manger, is my picture of this child big enough? Is it really based on truth, based on scripture? Or is it just kind of a cute, loving tradition that we do every year? And we unwrap the nativity and we lay out little baby Jesus and his little feeding trough. And it's very quaint and sweet. And it is. It's beautiful. But the truth behind what's going on on that first Christmas morning and ever since is massive and life-changing. And so it changes how we see the baby in the manger, but it also changes how we understand our relationship with Jesus. So as we walk through this concept of everlasting father today, I want to leave some words ringing in your head that we'll come back to at the end. But at the end of Matthew 28, as Jesus is giving the great commission, he starts by saying, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So I want you to think this baby born in the manger This baby that fulfills these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child grows up, goes to the cross, dies in our place, raises from the dead, conquering sin and death. And then he gives us our marching orders. He sends us out into the world. But he tells us this, I am with you always. So as we consider what scripture says about this idea of everlasting father, I want you to remember This one who would be rightly called everlasting father promises to be with you always, forever and ever. What an incredible promise. So we need to look at, especially in scripture, the role of fathers. What would they have understood when they heard this phrase, everlasting father? We'll come back to everlasting at the end. But we need to start by understanding that God created fatherhood. This is not some cultural thing that we've come up with. God created fatherhood. He he creates Adam and Eve, and Adam becomes the father of all humanity. He calls Abraham into a relationship with himself and says, Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. God has this role for fathers in Scripture. And over and over again, God's relationship with us is described as God being our father. So so whenever we have words like this, especially words I think we're really attuned to, words that we use on a day-to-day basis, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we say, what is Scripture saying about this, rather than taking our idea and putting it on it. I'm I'm always amazed uh, looking at fathers in TV shows, uh, comics, movies, I mean, 99 times out of 100, when you get a father in a movie or a TV show, it's a bumbling idiot, right? Now, now, don't say amen if that's true in your life, but I mean, sometimes it's true. I'll admit it, even in my own life and my own being of a, a father. But, but if we take this picture of just somebody that should be there, but's not trying his best, but he's really not that great. If we take that and we put that into scripture and say, oh, well, that's what it means as a father. Or we just take this idea of, well, this is the guy I go to when I need something. You know, dad, can I have the keys to the car? If we take that and put that on God, we're missing the point. So we need to go to scripture and allow scripture to define what it means by father. Now, we begin this by looking at how Jesus called us to address our father. And he teaches us to pray, our 
Father in heaven. And that word there, maybe you're familiar with it. It's the word Abba. It's this, this term of familiarity, but it did mean father. It's not just daddy. It, it entails a closeness of relationship, but also the hugeness of God's authority over us. This idea of God being our father teaches us about who God is. That God is our provider, our caregiver, our discipliner, our teacher. It teaches us also about our relationship with God, that we are to be dependent on God. We are under his authority in all areas of our life and all areas of this world are under his authority. But we have this problem when we come to look at God as our father. Statistics show that nearly one in four children today are growing up without a father in their home. That's hard. And and so we look at this idea and the ideal of scripture and, and earthly fathers that should be an image and a picture, imperfect, but still pointing us to a heavenly father. But so many people, that's not their reality. But this is true throughout scripture. As we look at the way that sin infiltrates human relationships, we see patterns of brokenness. Brokenness that hurt how we interact with each other, that hurt how we interact with God, that hurt these these examples that God puts into creation to point us to him. And yet sin comes along and takes like mud and just smears it over that picture. And so we're looking at this messed up picture and going, how am I supposed to see God through that? But our relationship with our earthly fathers, no matter how good or how poor, can help us, can point us to God. Because a good relationship with an earthly father can point us to certain qualities about who God is. Tough or even absent relationships with earthly fathers point us to our need for God. We can feel that emptiness, that void in our life or the hurt that has been caused there. And it can turn us to understand God has something different for us. There is a need there that only God can truly fill. So with all this in mind, as we come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we look at this promised Messiah as being our heavenly or rather eternal or everlasting father, what exactly does this mean? What does it mean that the Messiah that was promised is our father. Now, for those of you somewhat theologically minded, there's some questions that pop up at this point. If you're familiar with the concept of the Trinity, the Trinity is taught in Bible that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. That's Well, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have the three persons of the Trinity. And in general, when we're talking about the Trinity and we refer to God the Father, we're talking about, well, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So now we come to this passage, right? And and maybe we've got the whole Trinity thing figured out. Probably not, because it's mind-blowing. But we have that language in the back of our minds, and we come here and we say, wait a minute, how can the Messiah 
the promised child born in the manger, God the Son, be called everlasting Father. This doesn't make sense. It's important to understand that the Trinity is not in view in Isaiah chapter 9. They didn't really have a concept of the Trinity yet. God in the Old Testament spent most of his time with his people trying to get them to understand a core central truth, which is there is one God. They lived in a world where there were many gods, many goddesses. You could worship whatever you wanted. And God constantly emphasized to his people there is one God. So when you come here and it says that this one who was promised would be this everlasting father. They're not thinking in terms of the Trinity, and we shouldn't either yet. But God is trying to teach them about the quality and the purpose and the character of this one who was promised. That's what the fatherhood is about here. And so as we come to this concept of Scripture's understanding of fatherhood, I want to look at three characteristics to understand what Isaiah means here by this everlasting father. And I've narrowed it down. This is not exhaustive by any means, but I want to look at three characteristics of scripture, uh, scriptural fathers. And one is authority, that a father has authority. One is care, that fathers were called to and did, in fact, if they were a good father, care for their children. And the final one is instruction or discipline. So what does it mean that a father has authority and in what way does Christ the Messiah show this characteristic of being our everlasting father? And in scripture, this concept of God as our father is often linked to God as our creator. And the implication is if he made us, he has authority over us. Look at how Isaiah uses this. Chapter 64, verse 8 says, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. You see the authority there? You're our creator. God, you're our father. Caring, loving, sustainer. Absolutely. But there's also this understanding in their culture that if he is our father, we are to live under his authority. Deuteronomy 32 makes this even clearer. Is this the way he's rebuking his people here? Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? But look at what he ties it to. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? There's an understanding in scripture that if we are created by God, which the Bible clearly says that we are, that God then is in authority over everything he created. Now, How does this apply to Jesus, though? Second person of the Trinity. Not God the Father, but God the Son. Listen to the language in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. This is talking about Jesus. This is very clearly talking about Jesus. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. If we were to take that into the Old Testament times, into Isaiah's day, and talk about anything other than the one true God, if there was any guy born in a manger or otherwise, and we were to say this about him, God's people of the Old Testament would have said, 
That's blasphemy. In fact, God's people in the New Testament, when Jesus started talking and Paul started saying these things about Jesus, they said over and over again, you can't say that. That's blasphemy. You're saying Jesus is equal to God. And that's exactly what they're saying. Jesus is not some lesser God. He's not some messenger from God. He is truly God. And he has all the authority of God the Father He has, in that sense, the fatherhood over all creation because he is our creator. All things were created through Jesus Christ. That's why, when you get to the Great Commission, Jesus starts the Great Commission with this phrase. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when we think of this everlasting father and we think of the baby born in the manger, We need to stop and just pause for a second and say that baby, that son of God, Jesus Christ, he has all authority over me. He is our absolute father authority sent for purpose to use that authority on our behalf to save us. Another aspect of fatherhood in Scripture is that fathers are to care for their children. And this has so many different aspects, but two are they're to protect their children and to redeem or save their children. If their children get in a difficult situation, they are to go into that difficult situation and rescue their children. I want to thank you guys. You've been praying for my son, Ethan. He got out of the hospital this past week. Um, A lot of people have been asking. He's having, I don't want to go into details, but a lot of stomach issues. Um, he's not doing great. A lot of people have been asking and it's hard as a dad because like, I want to get into that situation and rescue him. I want to say, eat this, take this, drink this and boom, you'll be better. We're just not at that point. And it's hard as a parent. I want to care for my child. And so right now it's, Hey man, watch what you're eating. Let's make sure we follow up with the doctor. Let's figure out what's going on. But a good father cares for his children watches over them, protects, sustains, provides, and if necessary, and is able to, saves them when they're in trouble. Look at this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 1. God often in the Old Testament reminded his people, this is one example of it, reminds them of when he rescued them out of Egypt. This was like the epitome of him acting as a loving father toward them. But here he reminds them of this. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. Listen to the language here. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reached this place. What a beautiful picture of a father just scooping up his son and carrying him through difficulty. Now, if you know as I hope you do, because we've been going through it in in the sermon series that we put on pause. We've been walking through the book of Numbers, but we know what was going on in the wilderness between when they left Egypt and when they arrived at the the promised land. And it's not a perfect picture. It's a messed up people living messy lives, often in rebellion against God. And it's a windy, twisty road. But God takes all of that and says, yet through it all, I carried you like my children, like my son. Here we see God acting as a father who saves, redeems his children, and who protects and carries his children. 
And this helps us to see the relationship God wants to have with us. That we will then, as that child being carried in his arms, we will look to him and say, I trust you. You are in control. You are my perfect heavenly father. As I was thinking about this, I thought of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What a a picture, what another image of just trusting in who God is and what he's doing. So Jesus is our caring father. So how does this apply to Jesus? If, If this makes sense to talk about God, our father who cares for us, sustains us, is watching over us. Well, what about Jesus? Why did the baby come? Jesus born in the manger so that he could grow up and die in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Talk about care. Think about the profound love that Jesus has for us. To see our greatest need, our need to be protected even from ourselves, to see our desperate need to be delivered from our sins. And that's exactly what he did for us when we could not do it for ourselves. Good fathers care for their children. Good fathers also instruct and sometimes discipline. Children need to be instructed. There's a growing thought, pops up every once in a while, especially in education, that we just need to kind of be hands-off with kids, let them find their own way, let them figure out they're basically good anyway. If we would just leave them alone, everything would be great. That's garbage. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I'll tell you, I've had four kids now, every single one of them is a sinner. I could tell you on absolute authority. And that wasn't my fault. It's my wife's fault. But it's... No, I'm just kidding. Remember what I said, some earthly fathers are not so great. Just trying to prove a point. No, but I remember I I remember it most distinctly with my oldest. I don't know why, it just sticks in my mind. She's not here. And she's actually stuck on a train in, in Pennsylvania. But I remember when she was, I don't know, maybe one. You know, not quite old enough to talk, really, but they're beginning to be responsive. And, and like, there's those times when they're doing things as a baby and you say no, and you, you just know they don't understand. They, they just, it's not getting through. They don't get it. But something happens. There's a transition they go through where you, I remember she was going to touch something. I don't remember what it was. I think it was a kitchen cabinet. And she was going, it wasn't dangerous or anything. She was going to touch it. And I was like, Lindsay, no touch. And she looked at me and just, she didn't smile. Her hand was hovering in the air. And she went. And in that moment, I thought, she knows. She knows. She knows I was telling her not to do it. And she knows she was going to do it anyway. You don't have to teach children to be sinners. But we do have to instruct them in the ways of what is right And what is wrong? 
Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 talks about this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. So here we have God, our heavenly father, who disciplines us. Now, be careful here. This is not discipline like spanking. This is discipline in terms of training and instructing in the way you should go, which might at times include corrective discipline. Okay? But, but we think of discipline as I did something wrong and there's a punishment. Discipline is training them. It's like the boxer training them how to hit the punching bag. It's the toddler training them how to put one foot in front of the other. That is also discipline. Training them how to go and what to do. And the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Such a beautiful picture of God's loving fatherhood for us. Now, not all earthly discipline is healthy or correct. So this is another place where we have to be careful because when we think of discipline, we can often have messed up pictures of what discipline should be. But scripture points us to our need of a perfect heavenly father who truly knows how we should be instructed and disciplined and is doing that for our good because he loves us. And Jesus perfectly fulfills that need. Romans chapter 1 sets up a very bleak picture of how messed up we are. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, For although they, people, knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's all of us, like children, ignorant, going our own way, wanting what we want. We lack instruction. We need training. But it's actually even worse than that. Because we think that we've got it all figured out. We think that we already know. Romans chapter 1 traces this whole series of events and ways of people thinking so that not only have they rejected God, but now they think that what they think is right we think what we think is right. We think that we're really good at discerning right and wrong. But the whole chapter is about we are messed up. Sin has warped our thinking. So we need to be taught. We need to be instructed. We need to receive truth from the Lord. So when we come to Jesus as this great everlasting father fulfilling this role in our lives of instruction and discipline, one of the things you'll see when you come to the New Testament is Jesus spent a lot of time teaching. Why? Because we need it. We're messed up and backwards in our way of thinking, and we need to learn. And then he takes his disciples, this this smaller group that he worked with very closely, and there's a picture in, uh, I think it's Luke... Yeah, Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 of his followers. And I love this, like they're just getting to know him. They've been with him for a little while and he sends them out on his own. Why? To teach them, to train them, to discipline them. And then, of course, we come to the Great Commission. And what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, go, go out into the world and teach others about me. Because he knows we need that training, that discipline, and we need to be teaching others. But the best way that Jesus teaches us, the most amazing way that Jesus teaches us, is that he himself is a demonstration of who God is. 
John starts his gospel in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John doesn't talk about a baby in a manger. Not that he didn't believe in it. totally agrees with it. But he wants us to understand who that baby is. And he says that baby is the very Word of God, the perfect communication of who God is to us. This Word who is equal with God, who was God. And then he goes on in verse 14. That Word became flesh was born in a manger and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one, of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the ultimate instruction. Jesus looked at us trapped in our way of thinking, our sinful, messed up ways of thinking. And he said, I'm going to show them who God is. That's what Christmas is about. That's how God is, or rather Jesus is our everlasting father. He wanted to teach us and train us. And so he was willing to be born in that manger among us, willing to go to the cross, rise from the dead, that we might see who God really is. Jesus is our perfect father. And his fathering of us goes on and on. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah is telling God's people and still us today, God knows your need. And he is sending to us someone who would be our perfect authority, our perfect caregiver, our perfect instructor, and perfect discipliner. Now this just barely scratches the surface of how Jesus is our everlasting father. But I want to give us a bigger picture that when we think of that baby in the manger, we don't just stop at cute baby in a manger. We think and allow these terms to ring in our head. That is my everlasting father who has absolute and complete authority over me, who knows me better than I know myself, who loves me and cares for me perfectly, eternally, and who instructs me. And I need to Listen, I need to know who he is. So we have this picture of Jesus being this wonderful, perfect father. But then we need to go back quickly to that last word, or actually the first word. He is our everlasting father. Everlasting means eternal, going on without end. A perfect father who is perfect in his fathering and will never stop, will never give up, will never fail us, will never pass away, will never walk away. He is our everlasting father. In the Old Testament, this idea of someone who is everlasting without end could only appropriately be said of the one true God. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and exalted one said, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God comes to his people and says, I never fail. I never give up. I am eternal and everlasting. Psalm 93, 1 and 2, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. This is language that they would have understood of the one true God. But when we apply this to one who God would send, 
one who would be born among us, now it starts to short-circuit their brains because they understood Psalm 103 says the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. So how could one come who would be born, who could be called everlasting? This doesn't make sense. And yet over and over throughout the Old Testament, there are these inklings, these prophecies setting up this picture of one who would come who was more than just a man, who is truly God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus is our eternal father, eternally providing for us, eternally authoritative over us, eternally caring for us. Look again at Colossians 1, 16 and 17. It says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And for him, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. How can Jesus be before all things? Because he is everlasting. He is eternal. Jesus existed before creation. That's why all creation was made through Jesus. He will exist for everything or forever because all things are held together in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, it would all fall apart. So remember back to what I said earlier. Jesus, when he was about to ascend into heaven after dying on the cross and raising from the dead, he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is our everlasting Father, holds authority over our entire world, our entire lives, over every situation that we come into contact with in our lives, over our children that are struggling, over our parents that are ailing, over those that have been perfect pictures of fathers to us and those who have been imperfect or even harmful pictures of fathers. Jesus has all authority over all things. And this one with all authority was promised 700 years earlier by Isaiah saying one would come sent by God to be our everlasting father, born in a manger on Christmas day, dying in in our place on the cross to pay the price for our sins and rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. Why? Because he's our perfect father and he knew exactly what we needed. And he came to us to save us. And he can fulfill this promise to be with us always to never fail in that promise because he is our everlasting father. There's a reason our earthly fathers have a big impact on us for good or for ill. It's because we are wired for a relationship with our heavenly father. And whether they're a good picture of that relationship or a bad picture for that relationship, our relationship with our Heavenly Fathers points to something more. We are wired for a relationship with our perfect Heavenly Father. But sin has caused so much brokenness in this world. 
For some of you, your memories, as I've talked about earthly fathers, I'm sure your memories and your thoughts have been demonstrations of that brokenness. God knows. Jesus understands. He came to restore that relationship. He came to fulfill that need in our lives to be our perfect, eternal, everlasting Father, to love us and provide for us, redeem us and instruct us. So I want you to ask yourself this Christmas, do I see Jesus as my eternal, everlasting Father? Do I think of him in those ways, understanding that he has perfect authority over me? It's easy to dismiss a baby in a manger. It's easy to dismiss cuteness or put it on a card as a symbol of hope and love. But Jesus is so much more than that. He is that, but he's so much more. Do we submit to his authority? Do we listen to Jesus' instruction? These are not just stories that we tell our kids to make them better people. This is God himself teaching us, our eternal everlasting father saying, this is what you need to know. Do we listen? Or do we just cast it aside? And do we truly understand the immense care that Jesus gives us? That he loves us and knows us better than we know ourselves. He wants what's best for us. And in that, he came to offer his life to die in our place. He is our perfect, everlasting father. The truth of Christmas is that Jesus, the eternal God through whom all things were created and for whom all things exist, was born among us in the humblest of circumstances, a baby in a manger. But make no mistake, on Christmas morning, we are celebrating our everlasting, eternal Father. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for your care for us, your authority over us, your purpose in our lives. Thank you for the salvation that you so freely give through what you purchased on the cross for us and then offer back to us because we cannot accomplish it ourselves. Father, We need to submit to you. Forgive us for the many ways that we think we have it all together and all figured out and we're just going to do our own thing. May we look to you and say, you are our father. We will submit to you because you know what's best. We will love you because you truly care for us. You have redeemed us, adopted us as your children, called us into your family, and you have guaranteed and promised us that you will never leave or forsake us. And Father, in this sense, I pray that what we celebrate on Christmas would never ever just stay on Christmas Day, but would spill over and overflow into our everyday lives each and every day of the year because the day after Christmas, you're still our Savior. You're still our authority, our instructor, our teacher, and every day after that. So I pray that you'd open our eyes to the amazing truth of who Jesus truly is and all these incredible titles from Isaiah chapter 9 that we would look at him through that lens and see how great it is, this incredible gift that you gave to us through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.